it's essentially that God, after his flood judgment, the warrior Yahweh hangs up his weapon of worldwide wrath and he hangs it up for all to see, never to pick it up again. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's pray together. Christ Jesus, our Lord, we thank you that as we came to know Christ, that we can now be rooted and established in the faith, Lord, that we can draw near to you as you draw near to us, and we ask, Lord, that you would open up the scriptures for our understanding by the Spirit, and Lord, as this morning, just gripped by the words of James, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Lord, if there's any of us here this morning who are with self-righteous bravado coming to the throne of grace expecting that because of out of our own self-righteousness, we deserve something. Lord, forgive us, crush our pride. We pray that we would come humbly with penitence this morning, with awe at the wonder of your grace expressed to us at Calvary. So this morning, we come with humble hearts, with open hearts, ready to receive from your word. We thank you that we can study and exposit the scriptures verse by verse. And Lord, as we now turn our attention to this text in Genesis, we pray that you would be glorified uh, as we study. Equip us and encourage our hearts as we look to your eternal holy word, your word that is inerrant and sufficient. We trust you today. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, I grew up loving to read, and I still do. I love reading. And one of the ways that I learned how to read growing up was uh, on the Sunday newspaper comic strip. Do you guys remember newspapers? Does anyone remember those? (laughs) They used to exist. And uh, you used to call them the funnies or the comics. And uh, you would learn to love or laugh with Hagar the Horrible, with Calvin and Hobbes, Garfield. My favorite, though, if you want to know a little glimpse into my personality, was the far side. Love the far side. So some of you uh, are uh, fellow farsiders. But uh, no matter who you are, every one of us loves Peanuts. We love Charlie Brown, Snoopy, the whole crew. Now, sadly, Peanuts since Charles Schultz has died, is woke, so that's a bummer, but uh, back with the original uh, creator, Charles Schultz, the the cartoon, one particular Peanuts cartoon, shows Lucy with Linus, and they were both looking out the window, and there was a steady downpour of rain, and Lucy said, oh boy, look at it rain. What if this rain floods the whole world? And Linus replied confidently in the next comic strip. He said, "It'll, it'll never do that, Because in the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah it would never happen again. And the sign of this promise is the rainbow. Well, with a relieved smile, Lucy said, you have taken a great load off my mind. And Linus affirmed, I love this. He says, sound theology has a way of doing that. Isn't that great? (laughs) Amen. This morning, as we look to Genesis 9, we look to the theology, the sound theology that stems from God's promise to Noah. 
Now, if you were here last week, we looked at, we go verse by verse through the scripture, and we last week looked at the end of chapter eight, the beginning of nine, at what we called the reinstitution of the dominion mandate. God had originally given this mandate to Adam. He had said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And we saw last week, there was a, a re statement of that, a reinstitution with some updates. We saw last week that animals are now given as food. We saw that blood is now to not be consumed. And we saw that man's life is now defended and protected by God. We saw last week the sanctity of life and we celebrate uh, that. Now, what we're going to see this morning as we look at the covenant of Noah is God's faithful uh, God's faithfulness to keep his promise, that you and I can rest as God's people with an assurance that he will deliver his people from judgment. We've already seen that through the ark, which is a picture of the cross, a picture of being saved through judgment, but now God's going to, in a particular way, make a promise to Noah. And this morning, we're gonna see three aspects to this. So if you're taking note, verses eight through 11 of chapter nine, we're gonna look at the promise given to creation, God assures not just Noah and his sons, but all of creation. He'll never again flood the whole earth. We're gonna secondly see the proof of the covenant in verses 12 through 17. And this proof is a sign. It's a visible picture of God's covenant. And this is, in this case, a bow, a rainbow in the clouds. And then we're gonna see in verses 18 through 29, the profanity of Canaan. And this profanity is displayed in the sin of his father, Ham. And yet, this sin, we're gonna see how it affects, it impacts future generations. But in all of this today, it's my prayer, wherever you're at today, in faith, that you and I will see through God's promise to Noah, we'll see a picture of a true and better covenant. One that's not just merely an assurance of deliverance from death, but deliverance from an eternal punishment. And even though Noah is a righteous man who has been, he's been obedient and he's walked blamelessly with God, we're gonna see today as we just read that he and his sons are far from sinless. So in this new world, the curse of sin remains. Meaning, when we come to the end of chapter nine, we find those two verses to be surprising to us because wasn't Noah supposed to be the one, the seed who would crush the serpent's head? And it says in verse 29, in the days of Noah were 950 years and then he died. It's not Noah. We look ahead to maybe one of his sons, one of his descendants. So as we understand the theology of God's covenant with Noah, my prayer is that like Lucy, you and I will have a great load of anxiety and despair lifted off of our hearts and our minds this morning as we look to the God who's always been faithful to keep his promise. The title of the sermon this morning is God Keeps His Covenant, and we need a hearty amen to that. Amen. God keeps his covenant, and what a wonderful truth that is. So let's look at this first section, the promise to creation. Verse eight, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him. So he's speaking this to Noah. Noah records this. Moses will eventually write this. Here's the covenant, verse nine. Behold, pay attention. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, that's who the covenant is with, and notice, it is for every beast of the earth. 
It's not just for the immediate people on the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, if you would, if you have a pen or highlighter, circle the word covenant here in verse nine. This is not the first time we've seen this word in the scriptures and it's certainly not the last time we'll see it. In fact, we saw it first in chapter six before the flood. There in verses 17 and 18 on the screen, you can see it. God had said, behold, again, there's that word behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. This is a scary promise. This is going to happen. But he says, I will establish my covenant with you and with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, this word covenant that God promises beforehand, he's now faithful to uh, keep and deliver. He's proving faithful to that initial promise before the flood. And as we look at these verses, we actually see the word covenant listed seven times in this section. So I told you to highlight, circle, mark verse nine, but it's also in verse 11 and verse 12 and verse 13 and verse 15, 16 and 17. Just about every verse that God speaks to Noah, he's speaking the word covenant. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is essentially an agreement. It's not less than that, but it's much more than that. Now, we as a church, you just heard we're having our Shoreline Explored member class in August on the 7th and the 21st, and that's a great way for you to become a part of our fellowship, to learn who we are, for us to learn who you are, uh, to talk about the gospel and the local church, and to get plugged into ministry here. So I, I really commend you to sign up today on the app and become a member. But in that class, we give everyone, we distribute a member covenant. And here's what we say in that document. We say, a covenant is generally defined as a written agreement or promise, usually under seal between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action. We go on to say this, within the scriptures, we find a number of examples of covenants. Some are between God and man, while others are solely between men. In some covenants, one party binds his or herself to fulfill the obligations of both sides of the agreement. In others, the parties are reciprocally bound to adhere to the obligations. Doesn't that sound exciting to you? That last sentence in particular, isn't that what you felt on your wedding day? I can't wait to reciprocally be bound to adhere to the obligations of my uh, marriage covenant. No, no. See, the idea behind this or underneath it is that this is a relationship. One commentator said, it's deeper than an agreement. It's a pledged and defined relationship. In fact, when we consider the covenants that God has made with man throughout the scripture, we do see God pledging to do particular things, but it's motivated not just in the handshake and agreement, keep your and I'll keep mine. It's motivated by underneath what girds it up is love. It's a love relationship. And so there are actually, in God's covenant with Noah here, there are actually five aspects to this covenant. I'd love for you to jot these down. They all begin with a U. Uh, the first thing is that, I can't help it, I'm an English guy. They always have to be alliterative. So uh, if it's ever not alliterative, you can pray for me. But the first one is unconditional. So uh, nowhere in this covenant does it say 
that does God say, hey, this promise is revoked if the violence and the sin that happened prior to the flood uh, come back up to the crescendo of what it was before. If it ever gets violent or sinful again, I will destroy the earth again. It's an unconditional covenant. Now, that's different than the one God made with Moses. Uh, the law, that, the covenant that God made with Moses was conditional. It was dependent upon Israel to be obedient and then they would receive blessings. In fact, jot down Deuteronomy 28 and there's a whole list of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And in Deuteronomy 28, there's only 14 verses for obedience and the, the blessing. And then there's an astounding 53 verses for the curse of disobedience. Now, which one do you think God was emphasizing? Which one do you think Israel ended up to? Were they obedient to the covenant or were they disobedient? You guys are second service. You should know this, right? They were disobedient. And so God lists out all these things. You'll be the, you'll be the tail, not the head. Other nations will, will strike you and take you captive instead of you being the ones who subdues your enemies. And, and what ends up happening, sadly, is Israel defies God. They disobey God. They break faith. They break covenant. And they're seemingly cut off that the Gentiles might be grafted in. But see, this covenant here with Noah is unlike that. It's not conditioned upon obedience. God just in one fail swoop makes an unconditional promise. But secondly, if you're taking note, it's also undeserved. Noah didn't earn this any more than the giraffes earned it. This covenant is revealing God's amazing grace. All of mankind deserved judgment and most of mankind received it. Yet in that wrath, we know God remembers mercy. He plucks out some whom he will act in faithfulness to, that he'll shine his gracious love towards, that he'll extend unmerited favor to. And that is not the deserving. It wasn't that God said, well, because Noah is this spectacular man who's sinless, that's why I will save him. God reaches down in his grace and he plucks Noah. And as we'll see today, Noah was far from sinless, but it's undeserved. Thirdly though, this covenant is unceasing. So Romans 1 speaks about the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of God. And scripture declares that in the end, God will rightly judge the earth by fire. So that will happen. Yet here in this, what we call the Noahic covenant, God promises his protective promise to not destroy the earth with water, with flood. This will endure for all generations. It is, verse 12 and 16, an everlasting covenant. You and I are generations uh, post-Noah, and we can still say today, there's never been since then a flood that has wiped out the entire world. This is an unceasing covenant. Fourthly, it's a unilateral covenant. What does that mean? Well, it means it's not a negotiation. It's not as if Noah in his offering of the clean birds and the clean animals, he's lighting them on fire as an offering to God. It's not as if as the smoke is wafting up to Yahweh, Noah says, okay, God, I have an idea. I've got a plan. Here's what I think we should work on together. This is no, this is not uh, Noah initiating. God in his covenants always initiates. He always fixes the terms and he announces what those terms will be. It's not a negotiation. If you've been to a yard sale, or if you've been overseas to a market. You know, if you go to like, we've been to the Bahamas and we get off the ship and there's uh, 
yes, we've been on cruises to Bahamas. If, if you've ever done that, you, uh, if you land there, there's a market right near the port area and uh, you can go up and say, oh, how much is this Gucci bag? Because it's definitely real. And you start to negotiate it back and forth and the person, you'll realize that, you know, $300 price is not the final price. You can haggle. So you can argue and negotiate and work your price down. Or if you've been at a yard sale, you might hold the line. But that price is negotiable. That's not how God is in his covenants. His covenants are not something we negotiate. Well, Lord, you know, that's a little harsh. Can we, you know, raise you three? Like, that's not how it works. When God makes a covenant, we don't bargain with it. He sets the terms and he doesn't negotiate. It's unilateral here. God is setting this to be done. Number five, though, this covenant with Noah is universal. It's not merely with mankind. It includes the animals. It's not merely with those on the ark, but throughout all time. There have been local floods since the days of Noah that this covenant shows us God has been faithful to keep this covenant through all generations. He's still faithful today. Spurgeon said this. He said, it cheered my heart when thinking this matter over to remember that although I depend upon covenant faithfulness, I'm not alone in that dependence. For every living thing upon the face of the earth lives by virtue of the immutable covenant of God. And then he says this, covenant engagements preserve the world from flood. Were it not for that covenant, the tops of the mountains might be covered tomorrow. So we, like Noah, can sit back and thank the Lord and bask in his covenant faithfulness. We don't deserve it, and yet he is without ceasingly continued to have this mercy towards even our generation. Now, with every covenant, uh, there's a lot, lot of covenants in Scripture, but with the primary ones, there's what's known as a sign of the covenant. So let's look at this second section, the proof of the covenant. Verse 12, it says, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Here it is, verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The bow in the cloud. What is the bow in the cloud? Well, that's the rainbow. And this is the sign of God's covenant with Noah and with creation. Now, why does God introduce a sign with his covenants? I would argue because God not only verbalizes his promises, he also visualizes them. Uh, If we look at the primary covenants in the scripture, we see that much of the time there's a sign that accompanies it. So just for a minute, if you're taking notes, right here with Noah, we see that there's a sign of the rainbow, that God will be faithful to keep his promise. With Abraham, there's a sign of circumcision. With Moses, the Sabbath. With David, a throne that seems to have a ruler perpetually on it through all generations. And then in the new covenant, we have this sign, this visual expression of the truth of the promise through baptism and communion. We'll talk more about those at the end of the sermon. But for Noah, why the rainbow? Some people believe the rainbow existed before this moment, and God is just selecting it to showcase this part of his covenant to Noah. Other people believe and I'm sort of one of them, that this was the first time that the rainbow was revealed. And so in verse 12, when God says, this is the sign, it's almost like you hear this booming voice of Yahweh, and then the the clouds unveil this incredible, uh, glorious rainbow, much to Noah's surprise and delight. And that's very possible. But what we do know is that 
God reiterates this promise over and over. Look at verse 14. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, when that happens, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Do you see why it's there? It's for God to remember and for us to be reassured. God says, when I see it, I'll remember, and this is hope for you to be reassured. He goes on, and he almost repeats it again, verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. In other words, when I see it, I'll remember. When you see it, you'll be reassured. Now, when you and I, I mean, we're enlightened folk, we're postmodern, we're in a postmodern culture. So when we hear rainbow, we are not like those who would have read this initially or those even up to the 16th, 17th century. We, up until that point, were like, what is this? It's a supernatural event. We're not sure how this happens. Now we know, we're, we're much smarter folk now, right? We, we have elevated to that place of enlightenment. And so when we look at a rainbow, we just dismiss it away. And it's just a refraction of light. There's nothing glorious or majestic about it. And yet, you see people posting YouTube videos who are crying at the sight of a double rainbow. They just can't believe it. No matter what, when we look at the glory and the splendor of a rainbow, you and I can have all the scientific facts about it, but those should never diminish the beauty of it. It's like someone saying, I can scientifically, uh, chemically line out every item that is in a key lime pie. And while that scientist, that chemist is over here disintegrating and breaking down and, and digesting, you know, through science, all the parts of the key lime pie, I'm over here actually eating the key lime pie and enjoying it to the glory of God. That didn't get an amen. amen. <laughs> Come on, we're Christians here. We eat key lime pie. Now, when we think about this for a minute though, the word in the Hebrew for rainbow is not, it's not actually there. Rainbow is not found. In fact, the ESV perfectly translates this in the way the Hebrew does. It's the word bow. It's the word that was used for a warrior who would be an archer, who would take a war weapon into battle, who would draw it back, who would, who would strike his enemy with arrows. I find it fascinating that that's the word that's used here. Jeremiah describes the Lord as a warrior. And Psalm 18 says this. It says, The Lord thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. God is a warrior uh, against those who would defy him as enemies. And so this idea is very pictorial, if not a metaphor. Do you see the metaphor? It's essentially that God, after his flood judgment, the warrior Yahweh hangs up his weapon of worldwide wrath and he hangs it up for all to see, never to pick it up again. I like what one commentator said. They said, as the rainbow shines forth against a dark background, which but shortly before flashed with lightnings, this bow symbolizes the victory of bright, gentle love over the darkly luminous wrath. Extending from heaven to earth, it proclaims peace between God and man. Reaching, as it does, beyond the range of vision, it declares that God's covenant of grace is all-embracing. 
You see, there's not only rainbows ostensibly daily across the surface of the earth since that time, but biblically, rainbows are also associated in heaven with the presence of God. In fact, just jot these down. Uh, these references speak to this. Ezekiel 1:28, Revelation 4:3, and 10:1. These all speak to a rainbow being associated with God's very presence. Now, God's word was enough. His promise was enough, wasn't it? God can just say this to Noah without the visible sign. So why include this with future covenants and with this covenant? Well, as I mentioned before, a, a sign is a reminder and it's a reassurance, but it's also a removal. So it's a reminder for, for God to keep his covenant. But it's also a reassurance to mankind that God will not judge the earth the same way he did. This will not produce, as these clouds begin to form, it's not gonna produce a global judgment. But the sign is also a picture of something that, that is different. Something different is about to take place with this new covenant. It's gonna remove this people from the rest of people or it's gonna remove this action from every other action that seems to take place. So the sign of the rainbow sets it apart from the cloud, the clouds that were prior to the flood. It's now a removal, it's a set apart thing. And we'll see why that's important later. But just picture what this would have been like for Noah and his family to walk off the ark and to realize what God had just done. And one person says this, this commentator says, just think of it, all animal life except that on the ark died. We can barely imagine the feelings of horror and anxiety which swept over Noah and his family as they emerged from the ark as the sole survivors on the planet. Everyone they knew before was gone. Imagine the terror they would have felt when they first heard thunder or saw storm clouds forming. Every little rainstorm could make their stomachs churn. What if the rain doesn't stop? What if God destroys us this time? Should we even bother to build homes or plant crops? Or will God wipe out everything again? You see, this rainbow was not just a reminder that God would be faithful to keep his promise. It was a reassurance to mankind. It was a reassurance to Noah. It's been a reassurance for all generations. God is faithful to keep covenant. Now, as we come to verses 18 to the end of chapter 9, we see these as sort of a postscript to Noah's life. Mo, uh, Noah is emerging from the ark as a second Adam. And wouldn't it be great if the narrative ended with, uh, with verse 17? If it just ended with, wow, God's going to be faithful to remember his covenant, and then it just ends there. Uh, but it doesn't end there. So remember, from Noah and his three sons, the entire earth has to be repopulated. And so what this next narrative gives us is a, you could say it's a threefold direction that humanity is heading in. And it gives us a glimpse of how these three sons are going to react or how they're going to either obey or be obstinate against God. And as we look at this section from 18 to the end of chapter 9, uh, we're going to see Eden is far behind us, but the curse of sin is still very present with us. And so there's many parallels with this section and Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we're going to see sin not in a garden this time, but in a vineyard. Like Eden, there's going to be fruit that's consumed. There's also nakedness. There's a need for someone to come and cover that nakedness. And we're going to see the consequences 
of one man's actions that will affect future generations. We saw that with Adam, and we're going to see that with Ham. We're also going to see a curse, but a blessing in the midst of the curse. So a lot of parallels between this and chapter 3. And I think that Moses uh, is drawing this particular story out to remind us it's not necessarily Noah. He's not the one who is prophesied in Genesis 3.15, who would be the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent. We have to keep looking. We have to keep waiting and watching. So let's look at this third section, the profanity of Canaan. It says in verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham, he says, was the father of Canaan. That's important in a minute. These were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now, if you want to read ahead for next Sunday, chapter 10, we will deep dive into their progeny as we study that next week. But I want to make the case that verse 20 is not five minutes after Noah walked off the ark. A lot of us have that in our mind. We're like, he got off the ark, he made the sacrifice, then he got drunk. And, and I want to make the case for a minute uh, that this is many years later. If there's anything Noah did directly exiting the ark, we learned it last week. It was to build an altar. It was to make a free will offering, a thanksgiving offering to Yahweh of the clean animals and birds. But we come to verse 20, and it says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So in this new world, it says Noah began to be. Noah became astute at agriculture, at, at uh, gardening, at planting. And it tells us in verse 20, he had taken the time to plant a vineyard. And then verse 21 tells us that he drank. He drank of the wine of the vineyard. And so my argument that this is a long time after the ark is that he's, he has to have the time to plant the grapes, and then he has to have time for the grapes to ferment, and then for him to drink it and become drunk. And so it's, I'm not a, an agricultural guy, but it's estimated that this can take anywhere from one to three years for the, for the vineyard to be planted, and it could take another two to five years for grapes to truly ferment in order to become acceptable wine. So this could be anywhere from five to 20 plus years after Noah is off the ark. We know that Shem, Ham, and Japheth are called to fill the earth and subdue it to multiply. So they're having children. They're having sons and daughters by this time. And we learn next week that Ham's sons include Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And Canaan's the youngest son of Ham, and Ham is the youngest son of Noah. Now, as commentators read this, um, they really get excited, like in a negative way. They get really stressed out about why did Noah get drunk? And some argue, well, Noah had no idea what he was doing. So he, he just had no clue. So he, he planted the grapes and then he, he waited for them to ferment and then he mi mixed a cocktail and then he drank it and he goes, oh, this is interesting. And then he just became drunk. Uh, others would say he knew what he was doing. He learned it. He crafted this art and he's sinning here by doing this. But the problem is the Bible does not make a moral statement for or against Noah's actions. However, it does speak to Ham's actions. Now, just as an aside, since we're talking about drunkenness, uh, we just need to point out here that though it's not condemned here explicitly, drunkenness is condemned for believers in the New Testament. We're told in the New Testament in Ephesians not to get drunk on wine, which is dissipation, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So I would argue that what Paul's getting at with Ephesians there is we are not to, as Christians, be under the influence of any substance that would cause us to, to lose our faculties, to lose our awareness, to lose our ability, because we're supposed to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So someone would say, well, I don't get drunk on wine. That's what the Bible says. I get drunk on whiskey. Okay, you're, you're missing the whole point. Okay, the idea is I'm not under any controlled substance, whether it's drugs, alcohol, any sort of, oh, the plants were given for man. Well, I understand that. Not everything is good, though. And so uh, we as believers should not bring into our body something that uh, causes us. In the case of alcohol, it's going to cause you to become depressed. It's a depressant. It's going to cause you to lose your awareness, to lose your inhibitions. And so that very well could be the case, that Noah has lost his inhibition. He has, uh, he has taken his clothes off uh, in a very frivolous way. Others would say, no, when you drink too much alcohol or wine particularly, you, your body begins to overheat. And so he's hot, so he's taken his clothes off. But either way, he lays in his tent in a, in a place of shame. And Luther was quick to point out, even the supreme saints sometimes fall. They sometimes fail. And so when we, when we look at this, we go, what happened? The man who was righteous, who walked with God, who was fully obedient to all God's commands, he's in a drunken stupor naked. So we're just reminded uh, that we're not sinless. Um, now, what happens next is of great controversy, and it does reveal the character of these three sons. So notice with me, verse 22, Ham, again, the father of Canaan, that's important. He saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So his response, we can make a case, is to expose his dad, to mock his dad, to bring shame upon his father. He doesn't cover his nakedness. He goes and he exploits it. He shares it. But what is Shem and Japheth's response? Verse 23, they took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, walked backward. They covered the nakedness of their father. I love this part. Their faces were turned backward. So they're even turning their gaze away from their father and they did not see their father's nakedness. Verse 24 says, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Well, what's happening here? Why is he cursing Ham's youngest son? And why is he not cursing Ham? What is actually happening here? Well, there could be one of three things that are taking place. Now, this first one I think is the, the best, most plausible because the, the scriptures are, uh, it's the most straightforward um, interpretation. And this first idea is that Ham is simply dishonoring his father Noah. We know that that comes in the law. The law is spoken to beforehand. And so this idea in the law were to honor father and mother. That's a picture of this here. And in this honor, shame, ancient Near East culture, which continues today, uh, you are to honor, you're not to dishonor or bring shame or exposure to your father. And so perhaps he's doing that. Perhaps even with this first interpretation, he's, he's displaying some perverse voyeurism. That's, that's possible. Um, but we know Shem and Japheth's response, they, they didn't sin, their children weren't cursed, they were doing the honorable thing, they avert their eyes, their faces are turned away. Um, but then we come to verse 24, and this is where commentators go, well, what if it's these other two ways of interpreting it? Verse 24 is strange because it says, he knew what his father had done to him, and when it says, Ham the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father, 
Some would say in a second way of interpreting this, that that phrase is not literally to see the nakedness, but it's an idiom. It's, it's a phrase that means that Noah was not nude as much as he was insulted. So Noah was exposed and insulted. Well, how was he insulted? Well, that phrase, the nakedness of his father, it's used elsewhere in the law and it speaks of illicit sexual intercourse. So the second interpretation is, did Ham commit sodomy? Is that what happened? Did he expose his father to this sinful sexual immorality? Well, the problem is that phrase uh, that, that he uh, saw the nakedness of his father, it's never used to re- reference homosexual activity. Uh, but it does speak about sexual intercourse with one's wife. So the third way of interpreting this, some commentators say, you know what? Because this does speak to heterosexual rape, what left Noah naked, thirdly, could be that Ham committed maternal incest. That he was seeking to lay with his mother to usurp Noah as the leader of the family clan. And they would say that's why he went and told his brothers. He walked out of the tent and said, I now assert my authority over you. I am now uh, the, the head of this household. And there are examples of that with Absalom and others. And that may explain why Canaan was cursed because he would have been the offspring of Noah's wife. Now, we, we can't argue that really explicitly from the scriptures. I do believe the first interpretation is correct. But what do we know about Canaan? Canaan would become the Canaanites. The Canaanites will prove to be a wicked, idolatrous people. God calls them the thorn of Israel's side, the ones who are snares to his people. Remember, it's the Canaanites who dwell in Canaan, and they are driven out by Israel. And God says, I want you to drive them out, not because you are righteous, Israel, but because they are so wicked. In fact, the Canaanites in particular, among those who dwelt in that land, they were involved in gross idolatry, sexual taboo, and they even offered their children to the Baals and other gods, just a despicable people. They were to be driven out of the land so that Israel could uh, inhabit it. Now, when we think about Canaan, I do have to just hit the brakes here for a minute and pump the brakes just for a moment because there have been some in church history and in, uh, in Jewish history who have wrongly and racistly interpreted Canaan, his curse, that Canaan uh, is black. And so because he's black, Uh, that justifies black African slavery. It's a justifiable action because he's a servant of servants. And I would say that is ridiculous and that's racist. Nowhere does Canaan refer to uh, anyone but Middle Eastern Arab peoples uh, and who are subject to Shem and Japheth. This is not speaking about um, slavery. This is speaking about Uh, subjection. He as a person, Canaanite as a people, are going to be those uh, in the Middle East who uh, would often be subject to the other brother's descendants. So uh, what I believe is happening is that Noah is not pronouncing a curse upon Canaan as much as he's prophesying what will happen to his descendants. And so he says, cursed be Canaan, he will be a servant of servants. But even in the midst of that curse, there's a blessing. Notice verse 26. Noah also said, and by the way, these are the only words of Noah that we have in scripture. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. 
Now we'll learn more about Shem and Japheth and their descendants next week, but Shem is the only son that Yahweh's name is associated with as his God. And it's fitting because Shem would be the one through whom, among other peoples, he'd be the father of the nation of Israel. So it's fitting that Shem, his people would be the ones who uh, would say that the Lord is our God. Now, then we have Japheth, and it says in verse 27, his, his tents are going to be enlarged. He's going to dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, some would argue Japheth's descendants end up becoming, among other people, the European people groups, uh, which are vast. The Caucasian uh, ethnic groups will be very vast. And because of that, they're also going to dwell in the tents of Shem. They're going to come and they're going to, uh, unfortunately, appropriate land that is dwelt in by Semitic and Islamic peoples. And so they're going to overrun the Middle East. And so that could be happening here. We don't know for sure. But we do know Canaan is the servant of Shem, and Canaan will be the servant of Japheth. This sin of Ham played out in the life, not only of his son, Canaan, but in his descendants as well. And then we come to the final two verses of chapter 9. And again, the, the reader is left with a question mark. What happened? I thought Noah. Verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And he died. We realize Noah's not the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent. He's not the promised Messiah. He brought rest to the world. He was righteous. He walked with God. But we know he's not sinless. The reader of Genesis and we are left wondering, who is the seed? Maybe it's Ham. No, it's definitely not Ham. Maybe it's Canaan. It's definitely not Canaan. Perhaps it's through the line of Shem. And though God makes this initial covenant with Noah, it's not his last covenant. We will eventually see the descendant of Shem, the man named Abram. And God comes to Abram and he says, I'm making a covenant with you. And I promise I will bless you with innumerable blessings. You will be a blessing. And from you will come one who will be a blessing to all the nations. You're going to inherit the land in Canaan. And this covenant was sealed with a sign. And that sign that set Abraham apart was circumcision. This was a symbol that said, you are distinct from all peoples. Your fertility, your future depends on me, not yourself. And the circumcision act of cutting away the foreskin was also a symbol. It was a, it was a symbolized picture of a heart posture that would be cut off from other affections in its relationship to God. He makes this covenant with Abraham. But Abraham, he's also not sinless. He's not the Messiah. And many years later, as Abraham's descendants are in Egypt, God calls them out and raises up a deliverer, Moses. Maybe he's the Messiah. God makes a covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 31, 13, we read that the Sabbath is a sign of this covenant. It's a conditional covenant. And the sign that sets you apart, Israel, as my people from all the nations is that you will take a day to worship Yahweh and to rest. This covenant is conditional and we know that Moses failed. He struck the rock twice. He was forbidden to enter the land of promise. It's not Moses. Maybe it's Joshua, whose name means Yeshua, who actually brings the people into the land and then we find at the end of Joshua, Joshua died. It's not Joshua. We come to David and as the people enter the land, they want to emulate the nations. They say, raise up for us a king. And 
We know that King Saul was a failure. It wasn't Saul. Maybe it's David. We know it definitely wasn't David. He sinned. And yet in God's covenant with David, he says, there's going to be a throne that one of your descendants will sit on forever. That's the sign, David. Well, maybe it's Solomon. Maybe it's Solomon. No, he got married. It's definitely not Solomon. So who will it be? We're left with the closing of of Old Testament, waiting for the future seed of woman, waiting for the offspring of Abraham, waiting for the the redeeming Messiah, the shepherd king, the one who would make a new covenant in his blood, the one who would have a sign like the sign of Jonah, who would be buried in the earth and would rise again on the third day, where the law of God was written on our hearts and where sin is completely forgiven and where he would restore all that had been broken. So who do we find that culminating in? If you're in Sunday school, you know the answer to this. The answer is Jesus. Christ has fulfilled all of the covenants. And as a church, we have the sacraments or the ordinances, the signs of this new covenant, the the outward symbols of the gospel. We have baptism and we have communion. And baptism speaks to the entry into this covenant. We We enter through the death and the resurrection of Christ. We identify with him. And the Lord's Supper, and as often as we take the bread and drink the cup, it speaks of our continued procurement and enjoyment of the gospel. Every time we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we're reminded again of the great news of the gospel. Ligonier's ministry says, the rainbow is not a sacrament, but it prefigures the Lord's Supper and baptism as signs and seals of the covenant. These holy ordinances are also visible tokens of God's faithfulness. We go into the water, we come out, we realize God was faithful to raise Christ from the dead. We chew the bread, we sip the juice, and we're reminded of God's faithfulness in our lives to save us from sin and death. And so as we move from these words from Genesis, from the creation to the new creation, we see where we're at this morning. I do want to point out one thing. Since we live in a culture where the rainbow is esteemed in a different way, I want to just point this out, that the rainbow is a sign of mercy, not approval. So I just want to give you some history. There was an artist by the name of Gilbert Baker who in the 1970s, as a member of the gay and lesbian community, he said, we're looking for an emblem that captures who we are. Uh, Previously, they had used the, the pink triangle, which... Hitler had with the Nazis emblazoned on uh, those who were gay. And they said, we need something that is less stigmatic and a little more universal. And so this guy, Gilbert Baker, in 1978, drew up the rainbow flag, and it, it hung at the United Nations Plaza in San Francisco in 1978. And the reason it hung there is because he said, this speaks to our global struggle. And people said, why did you pick the rainbow? He said, it's beautiful, it's natural, and it's biblical. And so I hear that, and you hear that as believers, and we wrestle with that. We get frustrated by that. We say, you took something that God made as a sign of his mercy, and you've, you've made it irredeemable. And I just want to suggest to you that's not the case. We can actually redeem this. You see, the rainbow, as believers, we know, was given by God as a promise to mankind not to approve of sexual expression. No, this was given as a sign of mercy. When you look up in the sky, you see that God who gave us that is a God of mercy, a God of promise. And so every time you and I look up literally at the rainbow in the clouds, we should be reminded of God's mercy towards sinners. 
And maybe that's how we can also look at the rainbow flag. As much as it does invoke frustration and fury even within believers, we should look at it and remember it's not a sign of approval. It's a reminder God can save and deliver all people, even those who are among the most sinful and obstinate. I like what Desiring God said. They said, the next time you see a rainbow flag, think of this. One day soon, God's glory, now seen dimly in the rainbow, will be fully revealed and draw everyone to worship. God's glory will fill the earth. The glory of the LGBT movement will soon fade, but God's glory and love towards those forgiven by faith in Jesus will last forever. So may that be our posture. May we pray for repentance. May we pray for open doors. May we pray and speak boldly with conviction and never compromise, but may we pray that the Spirit of God would continue to be at work. Now, as we think about God's covenant today, his new covenant, I want to close with this idea. As reassuring as God's blood-wrought promises are, they still necessitate our faith. You see, it's not enough to just sit back this morning in your uncomfortable chair and just give a tacit thumbs up and say, yeah, I believe what God said. Yeah, that's good. But I'm just going to move about and, and do my thing this week. No, Hebrews 11 says that Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You and I are a part of that heritage. This righteousness comes to us by faith. From his son, Shem, would eventually come Abraham. And Abraham declares, or scripture declares about Abraham, that he believed God and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 3 says this, this righteousness has been revealed apart from law. You and I have faith in Christ and we have been given, imputed the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Christ came, Christ died, Christ rose. And yet that, that new covenant is not made with all of creation like it was with Noah. It's only available to those who receive it by faith. Israel walked into their covenant it was a covenant of works, and they entered it by obedience. We enter this covenant of grace by Christ's obedience, and we do so by faith, by repenting of our sin and trusting Christ as Savior. So this morning, believer, lift up your head. As you look to the God of the promise, you realize that the promise of God has proven true, that he's never defaulted on anything that he has said he would do. May that reassure our hearts. May that give us confidence and rest as we look to his faithfulness. There was a Polish Jew who became a Christian in the 20th century, and his name was Solomon Ginsberg. The, uh, the International Mission Board has a page that is dedicated to Solomon Ginsberg and many other amazing missionaries in that century. And he ministered throughout Europe, uh, but mostly Brazil, and around the end of 1911, he made the decision to go on furlough in the United States. And so Ginsburg was in Europe, and to get to the United States at that time, you couldn't board Southwest Airlines. You would have to, you still can't get to the U.S. on Southwest, but um, <laughs> you would have to get to a port. So he had to go to Lisbon, Portugal. He had to cross the Bay of Biscay. He had to arrive in London, and from the port there, take a ship to reach America. However, when he got to Lisbon, the uh, weather reports warned that terrible stores, uh, storms were existing right there in the Bay of Biscay along the passage to London. And so his advisors warned him, they begged and pleaded with him, don't cross 
the bay. Just delay it for a week. And so that morning, uh, the morning the ship was leaving, he opened his Bible, as was his custom, and read and prayed. And the passage he came to that morning was Deuteronomy 2.7. And Deuteronomy 2.7 says, The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you've gone through this great wilderness. These 40 years he's been with you, and you've lacked nothing. And Ginsburg, reading that, just assessed that that was the strength of the Lord giving him that that hope, that reminder, I've been faithful with you, so why doubt me now? Why fear me now? I'll be faithful to you in this next step. And so uh, listening and, and ignoring all of the counsel, he jumped on the ship, and what's amazing is there were no storms in the Bay of Biscay. He arrived safely without incident in London. He caught a ship called the Majestic. He took his voyage across the Atlantic, and it was smooth and restful, not a single storm or trouble on the sea. And yet it wasn't until several days later when he landed in the United States that he discovered if he would have delayed his trip by that week, then he would have made it to London just in time to board another ship called the Titanic. And so with great peace, he turned in prayer and gratitude to God. And I just want to say that and remind us as we look to the faithfulness of God, we find our own faith being bolstered and renewed. A lot of us have those this day 10 years ago, and it can bring that sad, you know, nostalgia. But when we look back at God's faithfulness over time, uh, after many millennia, we see storm after storm after storm, and God has always been faithful uh, to his people. We can look at his credit score of faithfulness and find it as a bulwark when we're tempted to despair, because that will happen. We will be tempted to fear. We look at the future and we go, am I saved? Is there condemnation that looms over my head? And we look at the cross and we say, no, there's therefore now no condemnation. As the song we're about to sing says, morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. So like Noah and his sons this morning, you and I are not worthy of any love relationship or any mercy of God. His salvation is all of his grace. He's perfect in beauty, in worth, in majesty, in truth, and in righteousness. And apart from God, you and I are sinful and desperately wicked. And so this morning, we come to the Father through the merits of Christ. The scripture says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, not works, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. So this morning, we encourage you, we implore you to come to Christ by faith, to to turn from your sin, to trust in Christ's finished work. No one may boast. None of us will stand before the throne in our own self-righteousness and say, I earned this. No, Christ pleads the merit of his blood, and so do his people. We say, I'm only in the presence of God, experiencing the glory of God because of the Son of God. And so for that, all we can utter through broken lips is hallelujah, what a savior, amen? Amen. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, it's with amazement that we come 
to your throne of grace. As we look at the book of Romans, it tells us that for a righteous one, one may dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, you didn't look through time and select those who would be the bravest and the boldest and the most awesome. But Lord, you looked down and while we were yet sinners, you plucked us out as brands from the fire. You have set our feet upon a rock. You have done the work of salvation. And we thank you that he who knew no sin became sin that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Lord, this morning we're thankful for the faithfulness of God expressed to Noah, but also expressed through Christ. This morning, Lord, would you stir our affections for you, for the gospel, Lord, and allow us to have boldness as we go into a world that celebrates sin, that celebrates defiance and is opposed to you, is enmity with you. And we as your ambassadors can go to the ends of the earth until there's someone from every nation, tribe, and tongue who's declaring the works of God in his own native language. Lord, we pray until that day, we would have boldness, faith, courage, and strength to walk with you and to please you. We thank you that this covenant is not based on our perfect obedience because we're sunk, if that's the case. So we throw ourselves upon the work of Christ today and we say, hallelujah, what a savior. Thank you for loving and saving us, for pardoning us who deserved wrath but received mercy because of Christ. It's in his name and his name alone that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.